My name is Peter Kroll. I am one of the elders of our church. If you have been told that Christianity is a comforting religion, you have been told only part of the truth. Because I know of someone who wants nothing more than to destroy this church. And that is an uncomfortable reality. One of his chief stratagems is to ensure that the members of this church don't realize that he is trying to destroy this church. So they either stop thinking of the Christian life as a battle, or they fight the wrong battles altogether. So let me remind you this morning about what the real battle is for the Christian. As we draw near to the end of the book of Ephesians in our sermon series, we're we're in chapter 6 this morning. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 920. And the main idea of this letter has been the unity God desires for the assembled followers of his son, Jesus Christ. God is in the, the, the process of uniting all things together in Christ. So he now calls us to walk in unity as a church. And the Lord has sent me here this morning to tell you that real unity requires real power against a real enemy. That's our battle. And that's the main thing you must see this morning. If we do not see this and live in light of it, we will find ourselves engaged in all the wrong battles. So I repeat, real unity requires real power against a real enemy. That's where we're heading this morning. Let me pray once more as we prepare to read God's word. Our Father, please enlighten our eyes that the eyes of our hearts may see you and believe what you have told us that we might be strengthened by real power against our very real enemy as we wage this war for real unity. Help us now, we ask, for the sake of your glory, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. As I now read our passage, please keep in mind this main idea of Ephesians, this idea of unity. God is uniting all things in Christ. That is the situation to which the author now addresses his marching orders. Ephesians 6, starting at verse 10. I'm going to read through verse 17. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. 
For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And I'll stop there for this morning. The first thing we must learn from this passage to help us with the real battle is to know where we can find point number one, real power. Real power. Verse 10 provides the overarching command that governs the rest of this paragraph. That command is to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And don't be fooled here. That verb, be strong, might make it sound like you're supposed to do spiritual push-ups or sit-ups or something like that to prepare for the real battle. Make yourself strong. But, but in the original Greek, the verb here is a passive verb. It, des- it describes something being done not by you, but to you. It doesn't require you to make yourself strong. It requires you to make sure you know where true strength is to be found. That's why some other English translations translate this sentence in verse 10 as, be strengthened by the Lord and by the strength of his might. Now, what sort of strength and might are we talking about here that belongs to the Lord? Well, Paul's been talking about it all through this letter so far. He's just bringing it to conclusion. In chapter 1, verses 19 through 21, Paul said that the great might of this God is that which he exercised to overturn the death of his son, Jesus Christ, and to reunite heaven and earth Once and for all. And he used that might to give the Christian church a head of state in Jesus who can never be impeached or impugned or impeded in any way. That's what his might does. And at the end of chapter 3 of this letter, Paul prayed for God to grant supernatural strength to his people so that they might have the strength to fathom the unfathomable love of Jesus Christ. Because without divine assistance, the love of Christ will always seem just out of reach. And either too good to be true, or merely a proverbial get-out-of-jail-free card that empowers you to keep on sinning as much as you want. So this first verse of our passage, verse 10, could be the best 
of news for us because it means that the God who created all things and holds all things together by simply speaking the words, the God who overturned death and reunited heaven and earth, he has made his immeasurable might and his incomparable strength available to you and to me. He has made it available to us by loaning to us his own armor, which I will get to in a little bit in point three. But this incomparable strength which is far above all rule and authority in either heaven or earth, it is available so we can not only engage with the real battle surrounding us, but we can even rout the enemy in this battle. How does this apply? Brothers and sisters, please be encouraged. Be encouraged. Have you ever wondered... If God's strength towards you might ever run out? Or have you ever wondered whether your access to his strength may have been taken away? Or have you wondered whether the shames of your past may have disqualified you from a share in such divine strength in the present? Please hear verse 10 again. Be strengthened by the Lord and by the strength of his might. When you feel most weak and most unworthy, please take your eyes off yourself and put them on your Lord, Jesus Christ, because you have an enemy who desperately wants you to lose sight of the Lord Jesus and to see only yourself. Because then the enemy's accusations against you might just stick. There is a real battle going on with a real live enemy. How does the Christian engage? By remembering where the real power lies. So they can draw on that power to sustain them in the fight. The enemy has power. He really does. But it's not the highest power. And real power never lies in your history, your wisdom, or your track record. It doesn't lie in your willpower, your self-discipline, or your education. Real power lies only in the Lord Jesus Christ, who died so he could crush the jaws of death, and he rose again while laughing in the face of hell. Real unity requires real power. Now, for a few times, I've mentioned this enemy of ours. Who is it really? And what do we need to know about him? That's our second point, which is that we must know who is the real enemy in verses 11 through 13. Paul introduces the enemy in verse 11 as the devil. He is the one against whose schemes we need divine strength To be able to stand. And could there be some of you here today who wonder whether our church is one of those that really believes in the devil? Yes. 
The Bible speaks of the devil, not as an idea, but as a real person. He is not described with horns and a pitchfork. He is described with fangs and claws. He roars like a lion and he breathes fire like a dragon. We don't know what he actually looks like. It really doesn't matter. The point is that his ferocity is violent and his displeasure is terrible. He seeks only to ravage and to destroy. He attempts to usurp the almighty rule of God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the devil's primary tactic to do this is to spread lies. So please do not mistake the fact that the devil is very, very real. Therefore, one of the most dangerous lies you can believe is that he is not real. You see, he does not have power like God has power. He's not omnipresent like God is omnipresent. But he has lies to try to make you think that he's all-powerful and that he's all-present and he's reading your mind all the time and controlling your evil thoughts and... No, he is lies. This is why we'll soon see the armor of God begins with the truth and it ends with the scripture. The devil's inferior power will be enough to defeat you if you do not leverage the truth of scripture against him. Paul has already told us about the devil in this brief letter. In chapter 2, verse 2, Paul called him the prince of the power of the air. He is the one whose guidance everybody follows whenever we try to have things our way. And his domain shrinks further every time another person is rescued by the undeserved grace of God to live a life of good works toward others as God would have them. And in chapter 4, verses 26 and 27... Paul warned us of the danger of sinning when we are angry because anger is the quickest way to give the devil a foothold in any relationship, inviting him to come and rip that relationship right apart. You see, Paul wants us to stand against the devil's schemes. And all through this letter, Paul has been telling us about his schemes, his battle plans. Those plans involve doing whatever he can to keep his hold on his own domain as a rival kingdom to God's kingdom. This means that he must try to rip apart the unity of Christ's church so that nobody can draw on the strength Jesus has provided so that they will fall down and not stand. So go ahead and keep fighting the wrong battle. Nurse that grudge. Keep your distance from that person who bothers you. Say more about that person than you say to that person and you'll play right into the enemy's hands. Because Paul wants to make sure that you and I know for certain who is not our enemy. Verse 12, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. When conflict arises as it will, 
and tempers flare as they will and misunderstandings abound as they do and feelings are hurt as is normal, remember that this other person is not your enemy. There is nothing wrong with having conflict. This is normal human existence. There's nothing to fear about disagreement. This is part of growing up as a community into God's new humanity. But there is something wrong with viewing a brother or sister in Christ as your enemy. This is the lie the devil wants to get you to believe because then you start to think that vengeance just might be worth it. And true brotherhood and sisterhood cannot be possible. And therefore, while Jesus may have been enough for you, he is not enough for them. And this is to completely misplace who your enemy is. And consequently, you will fight entirely the wrong battles. So real unity requires real power against a real enemy. But what does it look like to fight this battle? How do we access real power against our real enemy? Paul introduces us to the Christian's battle plans in verses 11 and 13, where he says in 11, put on the whole armor of God. In 13, take up the whole armor of God. And in the remaining verses, he explains what all this means. He describes three things the Christian must put on, and then he describes three things the Christian must take up. And the combination of those six things is what will move us toward real unity which is point number three in your outline. Real unity. Stand, therefore, he says in verse 14. That's the goal. To have real power to stand together against the real enemy. Now, before I I get to the three things to put on and the three things to take up, we first need to observe that twice so far Paul has called these things the armor of God. In fact, the whole armor of God in verses 11 and 13. Think about that phrase for a second. The whole armor of God. Remember the overarching command for this whole passage, verse 10. Be strengthened by the Lord and by the strength of his might. So how is the Christian to be strengthened by the Lord and by the strength of his might? How is it that the Christian gains access to the real power of God who rules over all and above all and through all? It is only when God lends you his own armor. You see, when you put on the whole armor of God, we get this wrong if, if we hear that phrase and we think that, that Paul wants us to wear this armor in honor of God. Put on the armor of God. Put on the armor that's going to honor God. No, he's not saying that. He's saying that you must borrow this armor from God. This is God's armor. 
And he's giving it to you. You must show up at his armory and get his pieces tailored to suit your measurements. Why do I say that? Am I reading too much in this little phrase, armor of God? I don't think I am because Paul knows his Old Testament. Ephesians 59 verse 17 says that the Lord saw injustice and it displeased him. So he put on righteousness as a breastplate. And he put a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. You see, this is God's armor that he does when he fights injustice. And then speaking of God's chosen one, the coming servant and Messiah, Isaiah says this about him in Isaiah 11 verse 5. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And he also refers to the Messiah's armor in Isaiah 49 verse 2. So according to Isaiah, this armor is God's armor which he bestows on his Messiah, his chosen servant, Jesus. And now Jesus bestows it on all who trust in him. Because we have been rescued out of the domain of darkness and brought into his kingdom. And we are now in him. So, back to Ephesians 6. You draw strength from God, the real power in all the universe, by borrowing his armor and putting it on for size. When it comes down to it, what does that mean? (laughs) Well, Paul tells us to put on three things. Verse 14, put on the belt of truth. The end of verse 14, put on the breastplate of righteousness. And in verse 15, put on the shoes of readiness given by the gospel of peace. See, just as Jesus came and preached peace to those who were far away and peace to those who were near in chapter 2, so also we must always have readiness to preach a gospel of peace to one another. So we fight the real battle by putting on truth and righteousness and the good news of peace that we are always ready to proclaim. These things must become part of who we are. They characterize us like the shirts on our backs and the shoes on our feet. These things are key to real unity. So Paul gives us these three things to put on. And then he moves on to give us three things to take up. Verse 16. Take up the shield of faith. And the Greek word for shield that Paul uses here, it refers to the large, rectangular, full-body shield of the Roman soldier. It's kind of shield that's kind of hard to carry around. And therefore, it will protect a single soldier for only so long. But maybe you've seen it in photos. When an entire troop stands shoulder to shoulder, and they line up their shields, one right next to each other, and then the second row lines up their shields on top, and the third row, another line behind them. (laughs) It creates an impenetrable wall that cannot be breached by arrows, spears, or often even chariots. So do you want to break up the lies of the real enemy, the flaming darts that are coming at you? Then take up your faith 
each one of you and stand united together. Trusting God's promises is a community project. We need each other. Going on in verse 17, he says to to take up the helmet of salvation. And at the end of 17, take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. This is why our church is so committed to giving you a strong diet of God's instruction from his word. It's to give you something worth giving your life for. Something worth standing side by side to die for. So in short, real unity does not mean simple friendship, though Christians ought to become the best of friends with one another. Real unity does not mean doing the same activities together, though Christians ought to spend time together whenever possible. Real unity means strengthening one another in faith, To trust what God has said in his word that we might live lives of righteousness that are pleasing to him as we walk in these good deeds he prepared in advance for us to do. It means constantly putting ourselves under the Lord's salvation like a helmet that we might prove to be his people on the last day. And it means studying the Bible, the word of God constantly like a good ancient soldier would practice with his sword. The sword play ought to become instinctive when the real battle hits and we need truth to resist the lies. Real unity requires real power against a real enemy. What does this look like in real life? How does this apply? Let me give a few examples. Let's say you are wrestling in conflict with a Christian sibling, a brother or sister, or a roommate. Particularly when when both of you are believers in Jesus Christ. If the other person doesn't believe, I might go to some other passages for more specific help. But for now, in this text, it speaks to relationships where both have trusted in Christ. Find the strength to fight the real battle by borrowing God's armor. First thing, put on the belt of truth. Remember the truth that your brother or your sister or your roommate is not your enemy. The devil is. And he wants you to think that this person is your enemy. And so the real battle is not against your sibling. The real battle is alongside them because it's a fight for unity. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Your hope is not that you have done everything perfectly, but that Jesus has. And make sure you now walk in the good deeds that God has called you to do. Don't raise your voice or speak harsh words to this person. Act with gentleness and kindness. Don't demand your own way, but consider how you can do good to the other person. Put on the shoes of readiness. Be very quick and eager to preach 
Peace, brother. Peace, sister, to one another. Just as Jesus Christ came and preached peace to those of you who were near and those who were far away, so now we preach peace to one another. So put those shoes of readiness with the gospel, the good news of peace to them. And then take up the shield of faith. Draw your strength from God's character and promises. Trust that he is who he said he is. Believe that it is worth it to serve one another. It will be repaid in the end. And you have nothing to fear from the Lord when you do this. Take up the helmet of salvation. Know that Jesus is your master and your Lord. He has rescued both you and your antagonist in conflict, the one that you're struggling with. He's rescued you both in the past at the cross. He is in the process of saving you now as he grows you to be more like him. And he, is in the, he will save you one day in the future when you stand before his throne vindicated as his people together. And take up the sword of the Spirit. Perhaps spend some time in Scripture together. Seeing what God has to say about your point of conflict with one another. Pray together about it and draw near in unity. So that, that's if, if you have conflict with a, a Christian sibling or a roommate. What if you have conflict with a, a peer in the church? Some that you don't see very often. Let me speak to only a few bits of armor and, and not all six this time. We always need to be ready to preach a gospel of peace. Have those shoes of readiness on and laced, ready to go. We have peace with God. We have peace with each other. We need to be ready to preach that. Take up the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. This means I will believe God's promise that we are both rescued by Jesus and we are both heading toward an eternity with him. Therefore, it is worth it to live now in preparation for that eternal reality. And so I will trust that God is at work. I will have faith that God is at work in me and God is at work in this person. So I will go and look. I will go on a scavenger hunt trying to find places where God is at work. I will look for something, anything worthy of praise. Instead of focusing on all the things that bother me about this person. And, and I will therefore seek to lay down my life for them like Jesus did. What about if you have conflict with an overbearing Christian supervisor? Someone who is over you in some way. It could be a church elder or a coordinator of a program. It could be in the workplace environment. It could be in your growth group or a community organization you serve. Wherever it is, you are under the authority of a Christian supervisor, but, and I'll say, let's say an overbearing supervisor. What do you do? How do you fight the real battle? Well, put on the belt of truth. My struggle is not against this person, but it is against the devil who is trying to rip Christians apart from one another. 
put on the breastplate of righteousness. Make sure that you have done everything possible to serve them as their subordinate well. Make sure you have done your work, and if not, then get to work to do your work thoroughly, competently, and committedly. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Appeal to them from the Scripture about how they could make it easier for you to serve them. And trust that if they're a believer, God is at work, and the Spirit will convict them as He sees fit. You can't make them change, but you can appeal. And as much as your conscience will allow you to do this, let them know that you want to help them achieve their goals. And it would be easier for you to do that if they would only do X or Y or Z and give them specifics of how they could correct their behavior, their leadership towards you. This requires faith. You got to take up a shield of faith. You need to trust that God will honor you when you obey him. Even when it's hard. Even if that means you must submit to someone you don't like. Or if it means you must disobey unrighteous commands and suffer the consequences for it. So trust that God is still at work. With any of these examples, if you find the situation gets too painful or too difficult for you, Jesus has given you the gift of church elders and deacons who would be delighted to help you find peace in your relationships. So seek them out. We're here to help. Let us know how we can help. With all that said, I would like to take a moment to speak to any of you who aren't yet decided on following Jesus. I'm talking a lot about unity and about standing together. But maybe one of the things holding you back is that there are so many divisions among Christians. I mean, why are there so many churches in this town? Why are there so many denominations in this country? It can't be true. Especially if the church's battle means we have to fight for unity. All the differences among Christians must mean this is not true. And I would like to propose to you that the existence of divisions among Christians is not actually proof of Christianity's falsehood, but it's proof of Christianity's truth. That's right. While disunity is not desirable, the presence of division actually proves the truth of this whole enterprise we call Christianity. How can I say that? It's because if this text that we've considered this morning is true, it means that there is a powerful supernatural being called the devil. And he is throwing the full resources of his artillery just to get churches to break up. That is his battle plan. And the fact that he has succeeded from time to time doesn't mean he doesn't exist. It means that this is all true. That's what he's trying to do. So what does that mean for you and for me? I would really like for you to find the sort of life that never ends. So I beg of you to please trust Jesus today. Confess to God that you need help. Thank Jesus for dying in your place and for rising to become king of the universe.
But if you do this, you need to know this will not necessarily make your life any easier. When you trust in Jesus, you have now become a target to the most evil being in the cosmos. Becoming a Christian means volunteering to sustain the assault of spiritual forces. It might be easier for you to not do that right now. Your life might be a little less crazy, but I assure you, if you don't become a Christian today, your life will become far, far more difficult on the day you face the real power of heaven and earth. The sort of power that makes the devil cringe. Someday you will face that power just like the rest of us. And this is why the message about Jesus is such great news because it means that there is hope that weak and sinful people like us could possibly stand before the throne of real power. That good news is a message of peace. Peace between Jesus and his Father peace between us and God, and peace among each of us with one another. That very message that makes us one is the same message that will keep us one. But it will take a battle for it to be so. Will you each join the fight with me? It may be one of the most difficult things we can do. It means we have to talk through conflict and not avoid it. It means we must listen to one another more than we talk at each other. It means we must look to the truth of God's word to ground us in reality. But real unity is possible for the church of Jesus Christ. Because we have full access to real power against our real enemy. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, we ask that you would please be with us in the fire, in the storm, among our fights and quarrels and disagreements and discouragements and hurt feelings. Please help us to fight the real battle as we draw on your power against our real enemy. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.